tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today I sit down with Elena Bishop, another one of my classmates in the occupational therapy program at Washington University in St. Louis. Elena is from Portland, and we've been classmates for the past three years. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited for our interview. And fun fact, me and Elena actually met the year before we started going to WashU at the annual scholarship day uh, where students present their research and they invite applicants or acceptees um, to kind of check it out. Yeah, it was a who knew that that would be the beginning of something so great. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And who knew that we would never have a scholarship day of our our own. (laughs) So sad. Yes. But hopefully this is still a fun and effective way to share your research. Much less pressure this way. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. (laughs) All right, Elena, can you share with us kind of what area of occupational therapy you'd like to go into? Um, so I'm not really sure yet. I'm a little bit all over the place. It depends on the day, but I really do know that I don't want to work with kids yet. Um, as much as I like them and I'm happy to babysit, I don't think I could do that every day. Big shout out to everyone who can. Um, I think I'd rather work with older adults, um, or I'm interested in hand therapy too. So I'm going to try and check that out during field work and see if that's where I want to take my career. Very interesting. We'll be sure to follow along and see where you end up. But I'm in a very similar boat. Still not sure what I wanted to do. It's the best part about OT. (laughs) We can do anything. Literally. (laughs) All right. Elena, we're going to talk about your research project specifically. It is called Community Mobility After Driving Cessation for Adults with Dementia and Their Caregivers. Somehow I need to figure out a shorter title. Yeah. But until then, <laughs> you did very well. Thank you. Thank you. I was, I was very stressed about that, so I appreciate the validation. <laughs> right off the bat, though, talk to us about community mobility. How is that defined and what all does it entail? So community mobility um, is defined as moving around the community uh, and using various types of transportation. Um, this can include driving, walking, riding a bike, um, Or it can be riding public transportation, taking a taxi, uh, using a ride share, um, pretty much anything. Um, The main point about community mobility is that it is the way for us to get to and from locations to do the um, occupations and activities we want and need to do. Um, It really is the, the thing that enables us to participate. For OT, uh, community mobility is really grounded in independence um, and being able to do the things you want to do sort of spontaneously or um, without needing to really plan ahead if you don't want to. I feel like that is so important to have that heightened sense of freedom to where if you can't just spontaneously decide to go somewhere and need to plan it out or know ahead of time, you might feel like you're kind of trapped or you're limited um, by your abilities to get around the community. Definitely. And that's something we as OTs should be cognizant of and try and help our clients avoid that feeling, especially as they're aging. 
Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see how you found OTs can do that based off of your project. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit more about what some of the impacts of decreased community mobility are. So how does driving cessation impact adults with dementia and their caregivers? Um, so as you know, dementia is a degenerative disease um, that in- impacts cognitive abilities such as memory, attention, uh, and executive functioning. Um, and these are all pieces of our cognition that we use to do ADLs and IADLs um, as independent adults. Um, and as dementia progresses, the individual's ability uh, to do those things uh, declines and they need more support and care. Um, so as adults with dementia need more care, um, who's providing that? It's usually family members, um, at least as long as the person is safe in the home. With more severe cases, people often need round-the-clock care, uh, and so it can be it can be really hard on a family. Often uh, it progresses, as the disease progresses, the amount of help a person with dementia needs gets more and more. Um, so it can include things like managing finances, uh, scheduling and taking someone to doctor's appointments, uh, meal prep, and just general safety. As far as community mobility, some adults with mild dementia can still drive safely. Uh, this is not everyone. And eventually, um, everyone progresses past that ability to drive safely because it is degenerative. And so this affects caregivers because their uh, responsibilities increase as the dementia progresses, um, and it can really impact their wellness and quality of life as well. Awesome. Thank you. Hearing you explain all that sounds like it's definitely a big issue that impacts the person who has dementia and also their caregivers and also their family. And I love the objective of your study, which I was reading some of the materials you sent me before this, and you say in your in your manuscript that the objective is to explore the role of occupational therapy with adults with dementia and their caregivers after driving cessation, which I think is very evident in your title as well. <laughs> but what problems were you out to solve or what questions were you trying to answer with this project? So the main point was just to see if what OTs are currently doing for adults with dementia and their caregivers after driving cessation is actually working. So what is sort of traditionally done is handing someone a list of resources and there's not really much follow-up um, or there's not sort of that regular checking in with the caregiver like is this person getting where they need to go how's that going so we really wanted to see if after someone is no longer able to drive if we as OTs had an impact on that process after to sort of ease the transition from driving to not driving um, for the caregiver and the participant. And I guess, you would you say there's a, a gap in the research regarding how to best support older adults with dementia after driving cessation? Definitely. Um, it's complex because you're merging two pieces of, of research. You're mer- merging sort of aging and community mobility as well as um, a progressive disease like dementia. Um, and figuring out how to merge those together uh, hasn't really been done yet, especially in this aspect of the follow-up or after care. Um, there has been a, plenty of research done about um, driving with dementia, um, but 
we sort of haven't taken it to that what's next step. And that's, I think, a huge part of OT is something we can work on. I love that. And it really sounds like you're looking into how practitioners can do more than to simply provide someone with a list of resources. Absolutely. That's great. Um, what were some of the main takeaways you found in your literature review on the science surrounding this population? So some of the main things I found when um, researching, doing the research for this study um, was that the uh, that health outcomes like wellness and um, mobility can be related to um, driving cessation. So um, people who there have been studies about people who've given up driving um, and they're at higher risk um, for depression and decreased participation in activities outside of the home. One of the more interesting things to me was that this reduced participation also um, carried on to feeling like they had a reduced role in their community and as and in their family. So it wasn't just outside of the house. It was sort of being that like adult independent person within the family that entire role changed also that's really fascinating that this change that might seem small to some people or natural just like oh as people maybe age they stop driving but that can cause them to have to reshape their identity um and really change the way they view themselves and and how they fit yeah think about like when you were 15 16 and you went and got your driver's license those feelings of like, I can do whatever I want. I'm independent. Like, I've got this. Now, fast forward 50 plus years of being able to do that whenever you wanted. And all of a sudden, not being able to do that anymore. Like, our identities are so deeply tied into being independent um, in a lot of cases, especially as adults in the U.S. Um, that, but what does that do? Like, they're... People with dementia especially are already going through a transition. Um, That's pretty difficult. And then you add in like this thing that was like a deeply held part of their identity that they may not have even known was such a huge part. Well, I've I've never thought of it that way before. Thank you. Um, And you conducted your research as a part or within the WashU Driving and Research Clinic. How does someone get referred to that specialty clinic? Um, So our referrals come from a few doctors who are associated with it, um, especially on the research side of things. Um, So Peggy Barco has been doing research on different populations and driving for many years now. Um, And this latest one is dementia. So we've got some doctors that we work with who refer those those participants. Um, And recently she started a non-research section. um, So it broadens it a little bit. And also streamlines the process of the the driving eval. So there are a few um, few pieces that are taken out. Like they don't have to sign a consent <laughs> within the research because we're using it for things like my project. Um, those participants sign a consent, but um, the non-research participants um, they pay for the service because it's not covered by any health insurance, even though doctors can require it, and uh, they come in and. It takes a couple of hours, usually, give or take, to go through that certified driving evaluation experience. And what all is included in that comprehensive driving evaluation? Um, So the driving eval is in two parts, at least how we do it. Um, 
There's the in-clinic portion, uh, which is done not in a car, but in a room uh, at Trissel. Um, or upstairs, I guess. <laughs> it is done in, uh, in a quiet space, and we run them through a series of assessments on their vision, um, like near distance, far distance, contrast, proprioception, and then do some motor testing, just some quick manual motors, just to make sure they're safe in those ways to drive a car. And then we go into some more detailed cognitive assessments, um, like the short blessed and maze test or trails A and B. Um, those are all part of our battery of assessments that we use. Um, there isn't really a standard, but that's sort of what Peggy has worked on um, to create a sort of set of assessments that work best for helping to predict if someone can drive or not. There's no 100% way to say this person's not safe for driving, uh, which is why we do the second part of the assessment, which is in the car. Um, We've created a couple of routes. The one primarily used for this was what we called our rural route. And it was through the hill neighborhood and, a, and through part of um, Forest Park. And it's the person with dementia, the participant, is driving the car. And Peggy Barco is in the front seat with them. And she's marking down what they've done and how they've done and if they needed reminders, that sort of thing. And that's a pretty wild process to see. I bet. And on the passenger side where... Peggy Barco is sitting is there like a brake pedal or an additional wheel or there's anything? an extra brake pedal um and she can grab the wheel if she needs to because she's sitting in the front but there is not a second wheel that sounds so interesting I'm sure we could record a whole episode just talking about those oh yeah it's it's pretty amazing how cool calm and collected she can be during that process so Elena how did you design your study So as I said before, my study is part of a larger one that is being done in our lab. Um, We designed a series of questions to use as follow-up for all of our participants, Um, regardless of whether or not they passed or failed the driving evaluation. um, We would call them up within a couple of weeks and run through these questions um, and try to set some goals for them and talk about the resources we gave them. um, And then depending on what help they needed or how they felt about uh, transportation for the participant, we would call them back or that would sort of be the end of it. Very cool. And what were you looking for with each participant? Um, So the main pieces we were looking for were um, how much help the caregiver needed finding resources, um, how much help they needed setting up transportation-related goals, uh, following up on those goals, and the reported satisfaction of the resources we provided to each of them. Um, we also looked at caregiver stress, um, what types of resources were used or not, um, and why certain resources weren't used. So a participant is referred to your lab, goes through the assessment process, and then you guys would give them resources at the end of that. What did those look like? Yeah, so um, at the there's a meeting after the evaluation between the participant, the caregiver, and um, and Peggy, and they would talk about recommendations, like you're not safe to drive, um, and then we'd give them a list of some resources to their local area. We um, personalized for each participant um, some resources for their county or city or township um, in 
the St. Louis area and into Illinois. Um, we gave them as much information as we could find about each resource. Um, like if there's a cost to membership, if it's free, if you have um, fall within the ADA requirements for public transportation, um, if your town has a senior's bus where it goes, um, if someone will walk up to your door to help you get to the bus or not, um, if a caregiver can ride with you, pretty much every sort of piece of information we could find that might be useful to someone, we tried to write that down in a neat form to give to them. Um, we gave them, we gave mo- most people about five, five to six resources. Very cool. And and what did you find in your study in that follow-up portion asking about if those resources were helpful, if they reduced stress or any other outcomes? So one of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting was people tended to not um, use the resources we provided them with. Uh, people would take them and um, a lot of people didn't try them. Um, for the most part, people ended up relying on family and friends for transportation, um, even though we often gave them like rideshare or paratransit or um, there are a bunch of private transportation options for seniors, depending on where people live. Um, but 88% of the people who responded uh, were relying on family and friends. Well, why do you think that percentage is so high? That's a good question. Um, Part of it, I think, is the options on the surface tend to look pretty good, but then you dig down. A lot of them are super expensive. They can be inconvenient. Um, Our participants, there were quite a few who who lived more in more rural areas, so they had fewer options, and a lot of the um, caregivers were spouses, and so they decided it was more straightforward for them to drive the participant and they liked having the options available to them and knowing that there were options. But in general, uh, family and friends is a lot easier and cheaper, especially if the caregiver's retired and can sort of do whatever they need to help out the participant. And listeners, don't be discouraged <laughs> because one finding as well from your study was that caregivers reported a significant decrease in stress levels due to your additional follow-up. Why do you think that is? I can't take credit for that. We did find that there's the decrease in stress and that was really cool, but we don't know. Um, We didn't measure it closely enough to know that we caused that decrease in stress. Um, But some of the reasons we think it might have decreased is that there was that in, uh, additional contact with OT um, and someone helping you, the caregivers walk through the process um, of figuring out what's next and having that supported role or just time. Um, the initial stress level was uh, ta- was asked shortly after the, um, the results were given um, to the caregiver and participant that they couldn't drive anymore. Um, and then the last... Um, stress level was asked at the end of the follow-up process. So for some people, that was at least a month in between. Um, So it could just be timing Um, or it could be our help or it could be resources. We don't know yet. So that's one of the things we want to look at next. Yeah, that that sounds like a great future direction. Um, So what would you suggest to OT practitioners 
um, if they want to positively impact their clients and caregivers during driving cessation? I think making sure that we are talking to all of our clients about stopping driving. Um, it's one of those things that we all sort of know is out there, but the reality of it is much more complicated. So if we are addressing it more um, and if we are following up with our clients and just sort of checking in, um, people do like getting resources. So that can still be one thing we do, but we need to go a step further and um, figuring out how else we can work on, on helping our clients. Um, yeah, no, I love that. And uh, Okay, this is a question I kind of have in the back of my mind. Um, what do you think about recommending transportation apps like Uber or Lyft to adults with dementia and their caregivers? So we often do recommend those rideshare apps. Um, it ends up being an it depends answer, though, uh, because it really depends on the stage of dementia. With mild dementia, if someone is comfortable with technology, it may be that uh, rideshare apps are a great way for their, them to get somewhere that they're familiar with um, and staying locally. But if someone is not familiar with the process, um, gets confused easily or disoriented, it could be a real big safety risk. In those cases, though, it might be useful for someone whose caregiver doesn't drive or isn't comfortable driving than using it because both people can go along for the same price. That's a great point. Okay, Elena, I think you came away with a really interesting, a really cool project. It's also pretty niche, I would say. Um, are these like driving specialty clinics pretty common? They are not. Um, you can look on the AOTA website. There's the lists of all the driving specialists uh, across the country. And um, I don't know exactly how many there are, but there are, there are like three or four in St. Louis that we I know of. Um and we booked up before all the COVID stuff, we were booked up at least two months um, in advance. Uh, so it, it yeah, the, it's definitely something that we need more of. So if anyone's interested in driving, look into it. Um, because the population is aging, all the boomers are going to have to stop driving soon. And they're fiercely independent as a general generation. So it'd be great if we had a way to help them and to sort of address those needs. I love it. That's a great call to action. All right, Elena, I want to ask you some more personal or opinion type questions um, about what you've accomplished doing this project. Uh, first off, what have you enjoyed most? I think the the best part for me was sort of seeing it from start to finish and just knowing that I had a hand in something that might be useful to other people. In my previous schooling Research always felt really out there and sort of not approachable. Um, and I think one of the cool things about OT and sort of more community-related practice and research is that it is pretty approachable and there is a very strong application of what we find. So that's been sort of the most fun part about this. And I liked working with all the participants. Is there a, a clinical example or a story you'd like to share of when you worked with a participant and saw a positive outcome? Yeah, one um, one participant was in and uh, he had some communication issues. And, you know, his caregiver was having a hard time sort of understanding that this process meant that if he didn't pass, he couldn't drive anymore. And that can be a really hard thing for caregivers to 
come to terms with um, because they sort of lose that independence themselves because they now have someone else to help. Um, and they were relatively young as far as our participants go. And while uh, the process and the outcomes uh, were gone over to the, the caregiver, uh, I got to sit and just chat with the participant. And it was a great experience to practice a, talking to someone who has communication problems um and just he was a very nice guy (laughs) (laughs) that always helps (laughs) awesome um was there anything difficult about completing this research everything is that a good answer um i think the hardest part was making things clear research when you read it feels so straightforward you're like yeah they like boom they had all these steps they followed them like easy peasy we cut out a huge piece of the follow-up and the research study that was maybe my most favorite, but we couldn't get participants involved in that part. Like no one wanted to respond to those questions. It wasn't working. So we revamped the study after our first set of participants to just cut out that and things started to go much more smoothly um, and we were getting a lot more data. And so it's definitely a trial and error um, and that was hard. It's tough to lose part of your project, especially because it, it almost feels like it's your own it's your own creation yeah. when you're going to school. That's my baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, to me, it looks like you still came away with a whole complete project. I absolutely agree. Uh, it turned out better than I ever expected. That's awesome. How will you or how will this research rather influence your future practice and career decisions? I think regardless of what area I go into, driving will always be in the back of my mind when it comes to working with my clients. Uh, It can be an issue at any age group, um, at any developmental stage. You're thinking about how is this person getting around to get to what they want to do. And so I think it's something we can sort of build in um, to the conversation. And uh, even in the acute care stage, people are they have to get around somehow and people often go home and and drive and I think medical professionals can take it for granted that people know when they're not safe to drive Um, so I think if we start that conversation early maybe we can help people out what do you hope occupational therapy practitioners take away from your findings I think I hope that we all sort of start to address driving um, and safety sooner in the pro- in every process. Um, driving is the one of or the most dangerous IADL we participate in as adults. It involves so many skills and so much muscle memory and like problem solving and there's a lot we can do to sort of address aspects of that. Um, so I think that should be something that we all sort of keep in the back of our mind. I love that. And that's such an OT way to look at driving. We always have use activity activity analysis and break things down and completing any task. There's so much going on physically and cognitively and even more so with driving where if you're impaired by even a half second, that could be the difference between getting to your destination safely and a potential serious injury. Absolutely. All right, Elena, we're almost to the end, 
Before we get to the golden nugget segment, I want to ask you if there's anyone you would like to thank or acknowledge in the completion of this research. Um, big shout out to Dr. Peggy Barco um, for guiding me through this whole process. Um, Gabby Blendon has been a huge resource to me also. She is uh, one of our research coordinators. April Marburger and Joanne Morrissey um, and the entire Driving and Community Mobility Lab have been big supports. Great team there. All right, Golden Nugget segment time. Elena, what's one thing you've learned from this process that you wish everyone knew? Oh, this is good. Um, Soapbox moment. We all need to be talking to our parents about driving cessation. So pretty much everyone, once they get to a certain age, is going to have to stop driving. It may be 60. It may be 95. We don't know. But the biggest thing I've taken away from this is that starting that conversation and the process of planning for it earlier really helps people. When you're trying to plan, when you have that hand in planning something, you're a little bit more in control of the outcome. So if we are talking to our parents, talking to aunts and uncles, grandparents, whatever, if we're just talking about what happens next and we start that conversation, they have ownership because when people don't have that ownership, they feel it's, it's very personal and it's an attack. Um, and my grandmother did not take it well when we took her keys away and brought it up for many years. And I think we could have really figured out how to avoid some of that if we built in a sort of a plan earlier. Um, even if it's like, which friend will drive you around? Or do you have to move after you can't drive? Just mentioning those things is a really good place to start. And the, I love the way you phrase that. Because driving cessation, you hear the word, and it's it kind of has a negative connotation with it. You have to stop. But really, by talking about it early, you're allowing someone to take ownership of this transition and to plan for it and that can really help them feel like they're not losing something and they're not losing an aspect of their life but they're just changing something a little bit absolutely it would be great if we could set up the entire transportation system so it works better for older adults um, and maybe that's something we can do eventually but uh, the thing we have the most control over is talking about it awesome well thank you for that golden nugget and thank you for this whole interview. It's been really fun. Um, so thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. This is great. Of course. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. I feel like the more I say your name, the more, the more I'm like, am I saying this weird? Am I saying this I, wrong? I literally do the same thing with my own name. <laughs> Having to try and spell it phonetically for graduation, I was like, how the hell do I say my own name? I don't, I don't know. What, I like called my mom. <laughs> how do I do this? It doesn't. We'll start it over. <laughs> <laughs> upon my enemies do the shit and love it on a daily say you hate your job but you'll never leave never leave but said it wasn't easy but right now i'm living breezy build this engine
I just forgot what it's called. So we got to start all the way over.